computer science has always marginalized people who are interested in users. Like, if you care about people, you're not techie. And I think that's a stigma that is, like, it's a big part of the reason that the internet is so broken, I think. Hi, I'm Taylor Owen, and this is Big Tech. When you think about the history of computing, key names come to mind. Turin, Berners-Lee, Gates, Jobs. These people, these men, built some incredible things. Things that shape much of our modern life. But you won't find any of them in Claire L. Evans's writing. Evans is a musician, an author, and an internet historian. She's interested in the internet of the past, and the people who have been left out of its history. In her book, Broadband, The Untold Story of the Women Who Made the Internet, she chronicles the women who were there in the early days, those who directly and indirectly shaped the internet that is, who put users first, database pioneers, hypertext creators, the women at the forefront of one of the first online communities. What is remarkable about this book, in addition to just being beautifully written, is that it focuses on people rather than things. So much of our technology discourse, and history ultimately, is centered on devices and gadgets that have both a false pretense of neutrality and a rapid obsolescence. But by focusing on how these technologies interact with people, and in particular on the women who figured this out, Claire reveals a completely different history of computation and of the internet. One which prioritizes community, relationships, trust, and the production of knowledge. All things that we clearly need a lot more of today. Claire's book came out a few years ago, but I really wanted to talk to her now. Because in exploring the internet that was, through the stories of those that are too often erased from our histories of technology, she may provide a roadmap to the internet that could be. Here's my conversation with Claire L. Evans. So one of the places I want to start is with this tension that comes through in any history of the internet. There's a real disconnect between the original military nature of the internet and how it came to be used as a way to build community, particularly in those early days. Yes, But community was never the goal of these technologies. I mean, in many ways, killing people was. How do you deal with that (laughs) tension? (laughs) I mean, I think it's just an inherent tension with a lot of technology. It's always been the way it is. Like, just the, the plain social value of people connecting with one another and building community has never been enough on its own to motivate the construction and building and development of technology. Like, there's always had to be this other thing be it military application or, you know, a capitalist uh, function for that tool. You know, we have this idea that, like, the internet is, like, inherently a community technology. Um, And I think, like, the sort of libertarian idealism of that first generation of people who were really writing and thinking about the internet, like, you know, the late John Perry Barlow wrote about a civilization of the mind in cyberspace. And, like, all of this stuff... Like this sort of this rhetoric influenced this popular conception that we have of the internet as being 
a community technology, but I'm not really sure it ever was. I mean, or ever was meant to be anyway. And like there were people, even in the earliest days of network culture, who perceived that and called it out as it is. Um, there's a really great essay that was written by this uh, writer named Carmen Hermosillo, who was an early and active user of some of the first online communities, like The Well. Um, and she wrote it, like, in, in, like, 1994, she wrote that, like, um, like although the rhetoric in cyberspace is this idea of liberation, like, the reality is that it's an increasingly efficient tool of surveillance with which people have a voluntary relationship. So, I don't know. I mean, I think this sort of That's always darkness, been there, right? The ultimate, yeah, yeah it's, <laughs> it's always been there. It's always been there. Like, there's always been the things that we criticize about the web today have always existed, just at a different scale and in different proportions. And yes, there has always been this sort of um, latent, like, dark underbelly that is its military origins. I mean, it's interesting, too, because some of that, like, nostalgia and idealizing of that moment was only possible if you look like you did it, the people behind it and that layer on top of the hardware. And yet we mm -hmm. romanticize the hardware side of it. We, we romanticize oh, the people yeah. who built the things, not the people who built the value with those things. So that's a, that's a kind of further tension there. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot easier to, to remember things than it is to remember software uh, mm. or people or communities. So these much more kind of ephemeral, intangible things. Like things have, physical things have presence. Like a box has presence. You can put it in a museum. It takes up space in a landfill. It has to be like taken apart and accounted for when you're done with it. I think the general, in general, the tech industry has sort of built itself on this constantly updated fantasy of the new replacing everything that came before, right? Like every time something new comes out, be it a platform, be it um, a different, you know, interface to an existing platform or a new physical device, a new iPhone, a new computer, whatever, um, it's sold to us as like, Everything that came before doesn't matter anymore. Here's this thing. Like, we're wiping the slate clean, and we're just going to do this moving forward. And that's, like, works for, you know, like, selling computers. But um, there are implications to that, right? Like, things don't disappear. They have to be accounted for in some way. So I think, yeah, it's it's a lot easier to remember the stuff because it's all around us. And, you know, the more we do this, the more the detritus of yesterday's dreams surround us. And, um but the software, the communities, the the things which are actually, I think, quite in a way more meaningful because they actually touch human culture and they actually affect human lives uh, in really direct ways, in negative and positive ways, um, those things are, you know, they're just much more intangible and it's much more difficult to lose sight of them and to forget their importance um, and to forget what impact they have on all of us. Yeah, but I mean, I find that so striking because they are literally the things that give those tools meaning. I mean, without without that, the tools are nothing, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, what's a computer without a user? <laughs> it's just a thing. It's minerals, it's sand, it's rocks, it's electricity. It's a paperweight, you know? It's nothing more than that. Yeah, and I think you're able to highlight that so well, in part because you're telling a history through the users as opposed to the builders of those tools. There's a line in your book that kind of struck me, and you say that if you're looking for women in the history of technology, look first where it makes life easier, better, and and more connected. So mm -hmm. why were women more likely to be found in those spaces in those early days of the internet? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think, you know, one of the things 
that I debated or thought about a lot going into the process of writing this book was this idea that I had kind of absorbed from reading, like, cyber-feminist writing from the 90s, that women were somehow more, like, intuitively or naturally prone towards this sort of community or user side of um of, of computers, like that women are naturally sort of like, you know, more interested in networking and people. And I think over the course of writing the book, I I deconstructed that because I think actually it's not that at all. I mean, in general, I try to avoid essentialist arguments about anything. I mean, there's plenty of women who are really interested in coding and not at all interested in people. It's not about that at all. It's actually more like the user side uh, of technology, you know, Things like user interface design or community building or moderation or even in the early days programming, frankly. Um, those things, uh, it just tends to be more marginalized in computer science. There's um, a woman that I interviewed for my book, Kathy Marshall, who's a hypertext designer at Xerox Park in the 80s. And she told me that, yeah, computer science has always marginalized people who are interested in users because that side of it is kind of not considered to be seriously technological in the same way that, you know, classical computer programming or writing compilers or something is thought of as being technological. Like, if you care about people, you're not techie. And I think that's a stigma that is, like, it's a big part of the reason that, you know, the internet is so broken, I think. But it's also what has resulted kind of in women being found more often in that side of things. Because it's not that they're more interested in people, it's that that aspect of technology is marginalized and not considered to be as important. And so people who maybe can't get a toehold in, you know, a, on a programming track career, like, can find some space there. Like, in those spaces that are more oriented towards people. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's um It's a place where historically women have been able to find purchase and women have been able to make contributions because they haven't been competing against, um, you know, men who are, like, more oriented towards what they imagine to be technical work. And that means that women have made amazing contributions to hypertext and, and again, community building, moderation, user interface design, like, all these things that aren't seen as being serious, techie things. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a good thing because those contributions... Have matter. been really meaningful. <laughs> yeah, matter, but yeah. at the same time, it's this happens again and again in this history where, even from the earliest days, like women will find some area that is you know open to them, um, will enter into that area, will make it meaningful by by like virtue of their work, and then it becomes you know like economically interesting uh, in a new way, and that's when they get pushed out. It started you know way back in the early days of programming. I mean, women were the first computer programmers, because programming wasn't seen as being a technical thing at all. It was seen as being like a telephone operator or, you know, a secretary. You were just someone who was kind of... Operating the machine. Exactly. Like patching cables and doing the paperwork. No one thought about like, oh, how do we make this process more streamlined? How do we make this process, you know, more robust? How do we make it work better? How do we evolve it so that programs can write themselves? And then we start building these meta layers, we build languages, like all that stuff. In the early days of programming, if you were like... You didn't have to have a computer science education because that didn't exist yet. You know, yeah. like yeah. you didn't go to school for programming because there wasn't school for programming. You just ended up as a programmer because you were good at math or you were good at puzzles or you were like a secretary that worked their way up the ranks. Like there wasn't this sense that it was a serious discipline. And it's not until the late 60s that it was kind of reclassified as software engineering. And with that comes, of course, like all of the kind of professional credentials and educational credentials that are required to kind of be an engineer, um, which both like semantically and like practically um, really made it clear who this industry was going to be for moving forward. 
But up until then, you know, it was a world full of women who just um, found it and fell in love with it because they loved the kind of craft of it and the puzzle of it and the math of it. Yeah, and I, I want to talk about a few of the people that you highlight there and some of those moments, but I do wonder if <laughs> what you make of the reality now that in the in, in the AI community, for example, that it's women dominating the conversation about the ethics and the use and the consequences of AI and largely the men building and commercializing it. <laughs> Have we evolved at all here? <laughs> I mean, I hope so. At least people are talking about the ethics of it. I think that's a contemporary experience. But, you know, I think the people who... It, this is often the case, like the people who are going to be negatively affected by bad implementation, uh, the people who are like have a reason to speak up about it, right? Um, the people for whom it makes no difference other than, you know, career advance or, you know, economic success, those those people don't necessarily aren't motivated to speak truth to power and talk about how problematic things are. They just want to barrel forward. So, Or they may not even see it, right? I mean, or they may not even see it. Yeah, exactly. They, they're not incentivized to see it at all. Um, and I, we're living with the consequences of that now, and it, it's right. It does kind of feel like um, history repeating itself, which is, I guess, why it's important to care about history. And, I mean, that's what motivates me. So let's talk about a couple of those moments in history that you highlight, I think, that are, that are I found really powerful, particularly. Um, but what I thought we could talk a little bit about Stacey Horn, who ran um, oh, yeah. Echo in the 1980s in New York. And I wonder if you could tell her about what she built and maybe what it tells us about creating community in these digital spaces. Yeah, oh, that's great. I love Stacey. She's one of my favorite people that I met over mm. the course of working on this book and one of my favorite characters in the book. She was the founder of a very early social network. Um, not the first, but I think one of the first most meaningful social networks. A BBS community. Uh, so that's a bulletin board system for the youth listening to this. Uh, a BBS community called Echo, or the East Coast Hangout, which initially was designed as a kind of East Coast counterpart to some of the communities that were beginning to emerge on the West Coast during the mid-1980s, um, places like The Well, which is quite famous and you know often included in histories of technology, um, as being an example of a place where um, the kind of utopian idealism of the hippies kind of coincided with the emerging capacities of um, you know, computer-mediated communication, CMC, as they called it in those days, uh, to create something new. And um, what was different about Echo, though, is that at the time that it was founded in 1989, um, a vanishingly small percentage of the population of people online, which means on the internet, but also on bulletin board systems and these kind of dial-up um, services, a vanishingly small percentage of those people were women. I mean, there's no, we don't really have numbers, but it's like probably 10, 15% of internet users were female. And Echo had nearly half of its users were female. So it was kind of the first place to be hospitable to women in any way <laughs> online. Not until the arrival of the World Wide Web really did women come online in huge numbers um, and kind of eclipse male users in terms of demographics. But back in those days, it was really mostly men. And that means... A lot of things. I mean, of course, that meant that women didn't necessarily have access to all of the possibilities that were inherent in this new technology. It meant that the very few women who were online um, had a really hard time binding one another because, of course, there was also a lot of anonymity and pseudo-anonymity in those days. Um, so Echo was a really kind of pioneering and transformative space. And it's really only because Stacy cared enough to make that happen. I mean, no other founders of these early communities were thinking about 
um, making sure they had a relatively diverse demographic of users. They were just, you know, they wanted to talk about gear and they wanted to talk about tech and how cool it was. They weren't necessarily going out and, and seeking uh, women users. Uh, Stacy did because, you know, she happened to be a woman. So she was like, I don't want it to just be me in this chat room. Um, so she did stuff that nobody else did. Um, she went out in New York City and basically went to everywhere she thought interesting people congregated, like, you know, art openings and literary events and club nights and just, like, reached out to people she thought were interesting and tried to convince them to do this thing, which seemed really wild at the time, which was to buy a $100 modem and, like, pay money to participate in some online conversation, some ongoing online conversation. She also would do stuff like... Every conversation, every sort of thread was called a conference on Echo. Um, always had a moderator. That was the way things were back then. Uh, but there was always one male moderator, one female moderator in every conversation. And she called that like cyber affirmative action. <laughs> but it was basically her way of making sure that when women logged into her service, um, you know, oftentimes most likely using a network communication technology for the very first time, um, that they immediately saw themselves as part of it. Yeah, yeah, and not just, like, in the culture of the place, which is super important, but also, like, in the power structure of the place. And that meant that, like... Yeah, I mean, that feels the most important piece of that, right? <laughs> yeah, and they felt like, you know, they could jump into the conversation and not be lurkers. Like, there were other, there were female users on these other earlier communities, like the well, but they didn't tend to participate in the broader conversation because it was just, like, a lot of egos battling it out. But if you saw yourself in the mix already, it was like people were more willing to jump in and, and participate. So I think... Those are really kind of powerful gestures, this sort of this this representation that she built into her platform and the efforts that she made to make sure that she had a more diverse user base. And ultimately, that meant that her product was better. Like, I think she realized, in fact, I think she, she wrote this really great book. And to anyone who's interested in early online community culture, uh, she wrote a book called Cyberville in the mid-90s that is just like an incredible document because it's really like as relevant now as it ever was in terms of thinking about what communities are. But uh, she said, like, you know, people thought she made all these efforts to include women uh, because she wanted to create some kind of safe space online. And she said, no, bite me. Um, like, I did it because I wanted to make it better. And I think that's a key understanding that she had early on that, like, we, you know, the founders of our present day social media, you know, networks don't necessarily have that same interest. Like, But at the same, you know, at the end of the day, like, Diversity isn't some like favor that you're doing to the underrepresented. It's like a thing that makes the whole community stronger, the whole community better. It's more dynamic. It's more interesting. It's more representative of the culture it's trying to serve. It's a better product. And I think like that's a vision that's really been lost. And in terms of a better product, what really struck me about Stacy is how she built that in from the very beginning, as opposed to now where we're retroactively trying to address mm -hmm. some of these harms in a system that was built for entirely different incentives. I'm wondering if just the way we've built community now, particularly around scale like that, can even be retroactively fixed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's that's exactly it. And I think scale is really, I think, one of the most important issues here because we seriously, if we, if we imagine that we're going to build communities online that have any kind of civility to them. I don't know. Like we have to seriously revise our sense of scale because it's it's totally unrealistic to imagine that we can we can monitor and protect online communities in the billions. I mean, Echo had like 6,000 users or something at its height. I mean, we're talking about really small scale stuff. Um but they had Nazis, they had trolls, they had people who were like 
trying to destroy the place. And I mean, fortunately, Stacy had more authority, like more lateral authority than, um, you know, someone might have today. Like she could just boot somebody off if she wanted to. It was, it was more, you know, community oriented in that way. Um, but we can't do that anymore, right? Because we're dealing with, with communities in the billions. And I think that's just unrealistic. It's not how people are built. It's not how communities function in real life. Um, like social networks as they exist today are not communities because in a real community, like people have a stake in their own environment, right? Like they, contribute. They barn raise. They like constantly negotiate and renegotiate how things are going to be and what the rules are. And there's a sense of public life, of of like collective identity that emerges through language and all these sort of, you know, idiosyncratic social conventions that develop over time in any group of a certain scale. And that can be messy and that can be ugly. And all the early virtual communities, Echo included, like struggled with these questions of of governance, but that's part of placemaking. Like that's what makes a place real, and I just don't think it's possible to do that uh, in any in any meaningful way at the scales that um, I don't know capitalism <laughs> requires for there to be like economically beneficial or you know successful quote unquote successful um, social platforms. It just doesn't work. So I, I, even now I'm, I'm much more interested in like s- small user led interest specific groups wherever they exist online um, in the margins of all these bigger things. Yeah, and they still do, as you point out, but they're, they aren't unicorns um, in the sense mm-hmm. that they aren't going to scale to the billions, right? There needs to be some other value proposition there. Exactly, yeah. The, and the value can't be necessarily only interpreted through an economic lens. There has to be an awareness of like public value uh, or social value that is important to the users. And I know that that's hard, you know, like that means you have to build something on your own and that's not possible for everybody. But um, it's always amazing to me what happens when people do make the effort to build something on their own. Um, You know, real community emerges from that. A second person I wanted to talk about was... um, Wendy Hall and yeah. the the form of hypertext that um, she imagined and and built ultimately, <laughs> and and can you tell us a little bit about what microcosm was, who she was, and how it differs from I think what people think of when they think of hypertext now, which is essentially just links online. I mean, we a good understanding of how foundational that is to the internet, but it struck me that she was imagining something different. Yeah, I mean, hypertext is one of those words, like, we think we know what it means. Like, we think of hypertext today solely in terms of the web, right? The web is written in HTML, it's got hypertext links, but actually, like, hypertext as a discipline is much older. It goes back to, like, the mid-1960s, something that kind of emerged and developed alongside the development of computer memory capacity. Like, it was as a way of, I mean, the central question is how do you turn all this digitized data that memory makes accessible, how do you turn that into knowledge? How do you turn that into something useful? Um, And that's like, you know, there's been many interpretations of what that question means, but ultimately, like, the practice of hypertext is essentially the practice of, you know, connecting ideas, connecting images, text, and all these things together into meaningful, you know, documents or experiences uh, through links or the convention of links. And I... You know, it's something that, yeah, like it's kind of gotten lost what what those goals were. But I, I've I've I think about hypertext a lot because I think before the web, like a lot of very smart people, a lot of women believed that in the future, 
like all of human knowledge would be structured in such a way that any curious person could kind of travel through it, building and adding connections, adding and building links, overlaying these kind of interpretations and connections, and that those webs of knowledge, those paths they took just traveled through that knowledge could then be extracted and shared with other people as a way of sharing worldviews. Um, and I think the closest approximation we have to that now is probably like Wikipedia. Like, you know, you go on a deep dive through Wikipedia and you follow one idea to another in like a way that's unique to your own perspective. And like, if you could share that with other people, then, you, you know, they could learn how you think. And so there was this whole discipline that started in the 60s, but developed um, well into the late 80s, early 90s of building hypertext systems that would like refine that process or make that process of discovery and sharing intuitive or practical or whatever. Um, and one of the sort of pioneering thinkers in that space is this woman, um, Dame Wendy Hall, who yeah, got that. Now Dame. Yeah. yeah, now Dame. She got the female equivalent of a knighthood, uh, which is pretty cool. But um, she was she was really interesting because she, she had been um, a mathematician initially, but kind of fell in love with computer science through hypertext, which she understood as being something that would make the capacities of computing like much more accessible to a much wider demographic of people. And that's something that I think is a motivation that sort of ties a lot of these women in this history together, this idea of accessibility. Uh, and the fact that you could kind of point and click your way through all this information um, was, you know, this this really intuitive way of using computers that, you know, now, of course, is baked into the web. But she built a system in the late 80s called Microcosm, which... I like, I don't know, I often sort of hold it up against the World Wide Web and as, as a kind of AB, AB, because like on the web, the way that it works today is all the links are embedded in the documents. And I know this is like kind of in the weeds, technical stuff, but I promise it's important. No, I like, think it's really interesting. <laughs> okay, all the links are embedded in the documents, which, you know, it makes it intuitive. If you see a blue word, you click on it, it's there, it's, it takes you right to where you want to go. But because of the fact that it's embedded you know, in the page contextually, if something happens to the destination of the link, if the page it points to is moved or deleted, that link breaks. You know, we get a 404 error, which is a, you know, part of the cost of doing business, of being online. But the web is like full of 404 errors. I think the average lifespan of a website is about nine years. So that's a, actually a huge loss for our culture because what we're doing is we're losing that key piece of metadata about what connects two often very different ideas together. And like that, that the why of it all is really important. And I think it actually hamstrings us technologically moving forward because like, for example, if we wanted to train an AI on data pulled from the web, then that AI wouldn't have access to that metadata, which is like really kind of key context um, and often reveals a lot more uh, about what's going on between those two things. So that's what the web is like. Mm. Microcosm, <laughs> Wendy's system, had yeah. a completely different design. And it predates the web, by the way, by several years. Um, but it has this completely different design, which instead of embedding these links in the pages, all the links existed in this separate database called a link base. And, okay, what does that mean? I mean, ultimately, that just means that um, you're never going to lose a link, <laughs> which is key. But also, it meant that, like, different users could layer different links onto the same material. So, like, that would essentially allow you to accommodate different levels of familiarity with the material. It meant that a link could have many different sources and different destinations. It could go in two directions. And if you brought new documents into the system, the system would search for keywords and automatically overlay all the relevant links from the link base into the new material. 
It's like this level of flexibility that made it so much more adaptable to people. Um, it was essentially built for learning. And it valued that super important thing, which was the nature of the connections between things. But it also meant that like, you wouldn't lose uh, you wouldn't lose any information. It would always um, remain independent from the platform. Like the information would be independent from what contains it. It would persist, and it would belong to the user and not the platform. What did you mean by that? The information would be independent from what contains it. Can you explain what you mean there? <laughs> <laughs> it just means that, like that the the documents in the system wouldn't contain any links inherently. The documents would be their own thing. The links are this overlay that lives on top of it that can be moved and changed and uh, overlaid onto different documents. Like, they're two separate things. I know it's kind of abstract and strange, but really it just means that, like, um, you never are going to lose any any links. You're never going to lose that crucial metadata, and you can take the you can take the links with you and put them on top of different stuff um, wherever you go. And I think that's interesting because it's sort of a it's kind of a fundamental value of like quote unquote Web three. You know, like this idea that the data comes with the user and isn't necessarily tied to the documents or to the platform itself. Um, so I think Wendy was really ahead of her time in many ways, and it's kind of tragic in a way because you know she was one of many different hypertext researchers in this community, which included a lot of kind of like what what Wendy refers to as the literati of computer science, like basically people who were interested in meaning and like what it meant to make meaningful connections out of information. And there was a hugely like beautiful and, and diverse discipline that that existed before the arrival of the web. And then when the web arrived, um, it sort of obliterated all of that because it was radically simple um, it didn't really care about the like longevity of the links themselves, and it was built on the backbone of the internet, um, which created a kind of network effect that made, meant that it it took over everything. But I often think about what would have happened if, you know, something like Microcosm or one of the other you know brilliant hypertext systems of that era um, had kind of gone on and become as meaningful to us or as important to us as the web is today. I'm not saying that it was even possible, but. I, it does make you wonder, like, what would the web look like today if you could have links that went in different directions? Or if any user could add their own overlay of links to any material? Or if we could be kind of, you know, constructively building connections rather than just passively browsing? Uh, if we could go in multiple directions, like, who, what would our culture look like? Because, um, of course, we're shaped by these technologies in really profound ways, right? So I think I think it's a useful question and a useful um, I don't know, reframing, I guess, of the centrality of, of the web as we understand it. I, w- I wonder if it's all necessarily good, though. I mean, wasn't one of the values of the internet that it provided access to way more information but common access and common understandings? Yeah, I mean, a lot of these early hypertext systems, they weren't built on the like backbone of the web. They were built on closed computer systems like you know, in an academic context or in a small research laboratory context, obviously the scale looks different, um, and possibly they would have been more exclusive or maybe more like purpose built or more oriented towards certain applications or interests. And the web has this much more expansive quality. But um, I don't know. I mean, things evolve, right? So I can imagine a world in which at least some of those values um, that that emphasis on the meaningful connection between things. Even if just that value came with us, I think we'd be looking at a very different situation. Um, but yeah, it doesn't necessarily have any. It's it's just a different economic proposition as well. So it's it's difficult to imagine practically. But 
I don't know. I mean, I'm always fascinated in the untraveled paths. So, I mean, stepping back a little bit, it strikes me that this history of computing and the internet that you tell um, is important for sort of many reasons, but most, perhaps most, because the problems we're facing now are mostly not problems of hardware and devices. They're all, they're all problems of software and how that software is being used and designed and incentivized and, and scaled. Um, I wonder how you think through some of the challenges we're facing now through that same lens, if we were to look at it from that software perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's really, I mean, there aren't technological solutions to human problems, right? I mean, I think the tech industry gets really excited about new conventions and protocols that will, they, you know, will ostensibly fix human problems. Like, oh, we're going to have wikis and, and folksonomies and, and user-generated content, and that's going to make it so that um, people can share ideas, you know, across across the world and, and contribute to human knowledge. Well, that just becomes, it's got to be hosted somewhere, it's got to be centralized. Uh, there, That's how we get the emergence of the platforms, that the, the same patterns emerge again and again. And you see that with every, I mean, we're, we're seeing that with crypto now, and with Web3 rhetoric, it's a lot of the same kinds of promises that were made, um, you know, back in the early days of the web. But ultimately, if the motivations aren't right, if people's values aren't right, then we're just going to keep repeating the same thing over and over again with just a different frame or a different language. But, you know, people are people are going to be people. I think that's something that I always find really interesting reading the early kind of web history stuff and even, you know, really the work of someone like Stacey Horn, like, all these problems have always existed at different scales. And like at the end of the day, it's we're going to have to step outside of the purely technological framework and start thinking about power and start thinking about capitalism and start thinking about the state and um, our relationships to each other in the society generally. I mean, because tech is just an expression of human culture. And, you know, until we fix our head, until we fix ourselves, we, we can't, you know, hack our way out of it. Um, and I know that sounds kind of doomer, but it is the way it is, you know. I think, I think we can build technologies that like make things more efficient, make things more economically interesting, and we can build technologies that help us along the way a little bit, and maybe even change our perspective on certain things, change our way of thinking. But um, they're not going to do all the work for us. We have to meet them halfway uh, in order to to build a better world. Yeah, and if you look at where the users are now and how they're feeling, I mean, as you point out, there there's a loneliness to it. And- as you, you say, there's no yeah. teachers, there's no friends. We're all only consumers of data and information <laughs> and products. And I mean, that's a very different value that's embedded in these systems. Yeah. I mean, I also at the same time, I mean, I feel that way, of course. I mean, I feel like the web is it's built like a casino, basically. It's just designed to to keep us inside and like pulling the lever over and over again to get that dopamine hit or that anger hit, which sort of looks the same to the machine, keeps us keeps us in the mix. But at the same time, I'm always surprised by the ingenuity of users. And I have a lot of faith in users. And um, I think a lot of the most beautiful things about the web are not because of the platforms, but in spite of them. Like they're what people are doing, like I said earlier, like in the margins, what people are doing um like just because they have that capacity. I mean, people have the capacity to do great things and to and to build strong communities and to help one another. I mean, there's, you know, the internet is full of stories of people doing amazing things to help each other out. Um, it's just that, you know, the processes that streamline that also streamline a lot of other things. Um, and I don't know. I mean, it ultimately just becomes a values problem. 
I just finished making this documentary series on uh, kids and technology and how they're kind of navigating these tech spaces and uh, the ingenuity of it and the creativity and the, the ways in which them as users are figuring out how to use these tools in ways that correspond with their interests as opposed to those of the people who built them is, is remarkable, right? But it's, yeah. but I also struck with like, why should they have to do that? You know, <laughs> like, like, yes, they're being ingenious, but they're kids. Like they shouldn't have to like come up with these ingenious solutions to avoid creepy behavior and stalking and bullying and all these things that are so designed into the system they're using. Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, kind of comes down to care, <laughs> like give, yeah. just caring. I mean, software is a mechanism, you know, at, at the most, in the most simplistic way, like software is a mechanism by which human beings facilitate tasks for other human beings, right? And in order to do that, you have to understand a lot of things about people. You have to understand like the task that those people are trying to conduct, um, you know, their mental model, like what they're, where they're at as they're approaching this task and, and the context in which they operate, like the actual messy reality of the world. Um, and then you have to figure out how to translate that into software. And then you have to figure out if the software that you've built actually solves any problems or just creates new problems. And that <laughs> means going like way beyond metrics and way beyond things like, you know, market share and growth and start thinking about bigger implications like, you know, mental health, community, civic life, society, and social skills are a really essential part of that. And I, I don't necessarily just mean getting along with people. I just mean understanding that people are part of the system. Um, they are part of a enmeshed, <laughs> entangled, larger context that includes other people as well as software um, in this big, messy world. And it does help if you care about people too. Um, and I think that's why I'm always like gravitating towards people who have that emphasis on the user because I think that is the big missing piece is just simply understanding that like technology in its own isn't isn't neutral and it isn't like this sterile thing. It's it's part of this messy complex world that we're all that we're all in together. And that can be a daunting prospect, but it can be a really exciting one too, because I think once we start to acknowledge that, then we acknowledge that we were actually dealing with the real and not just this idealized fantasy of what technology is. Like you've pointed out, in some ways the vision and values of Web3, or at least how it's being talked about, seem to have echoes from these previous moments that we've been talking about. How the decentralization of the blockchain is like microcosm, for example. Or how its peer-to-peer -peer community and oversight is, might be like Echo. As a historian of these moments, how do you think we should be looking at some of this now? I mean... Do you have three uh, hours to talk about it? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, I see that too. I see these echoes, so to speak, between you know both the the rhetoric, the intentions, the goals uh, of Web three, and some of the goals, rhetoric, and intentions of Web one. Some in good ways and bad ways. And I think on one end of the spectrum, it makes me a little bit leery because whenever I see uh, this kind of 
sort of blindly utopian or like sort of libertarian idealism about a technology, I have to wonder how much of that is just talk and how much of that is marketing and how much of that is just people like trying to wish themselves out of a complex situation by just wiping the slate clean yet again. Yeah, and, and building a new thing. And, and, you know. and building a new thing and imagining that we're not going to bring all of our baggage with us. I mean, at the end of the day, we're people, we're going to bring all of it with us. It doesn't matter what the context is. There's always going to be that element. And again, like I don't think there are technological solutions to human problems. At the same time, you know, I see that uh, that idealism, that emphasis on community, and it is like inspiring and and I think it's it makes me hopeful and it makes me um a little bit optimistic to see that people are at least like reacting against the situation that we have now, perceiving how and why it's bad and looking for ways out of it. Um, in that seeking, you know, we will find, we will find solutions. I don't necessarily think there'll be like blanket solutions that'll work for everybody. And I think there's an amazing amount of like heterogeneity in this, not necessarily like socioeconomic or even racial, but like in terms of ideology, it seems like there's lots of different kinds of projects. There's lots of different kinds of approaches. Which could have radically different outcomes or desired outcomes, right? They're doing it for very And different radically purposes. different yeah. like ideologies. You know, yeah. like there's the super yeah. financialized folks and then there's who are just interested in making money and flipping flipping gifts. And then there's folks who are really trying to build, you know, like new protocols for art, for the music industry, for, you know, like building co-ops for all kinds of models and style. I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's the chaos. It's funny. I mean, I, you know, I've spent so much time reading about the early web days and feeling kind of like, oh man, I feel like I missed out because there was all this stuff going on. And would I have been one of the per- people who knew right away that it was going to be important? Or would I have been one of the reactionaries who thought the web was just some newfangled nonsense? And now I'm in, now we're in it again, you know? So we, we all get the opportunity to experience the chaos of a transformative moment. And we can't guess what's going to come next, but I think we can hope and try to learn from the past to not repeat the mistakes uh, and like try to make sure that we are really interrogating our values and that we're building something that's going to be sustainable, that's going to be equitable, that's going to be uh, of at least a slightly better replacement of what came before. I think we can't imagine that we're going to fix everything, but if we can just iterate and improve bit by bit, maybe that might be what it takes. I wonder what some of those lessons are, though, from the... It seems like in those some of those previous moments, we prioritized a certain group of people, clearly, in particular a gender, certain priorities, whether they be militaristic or commercialization, and we ignored a set of things, or we didn't prioritize a certain set of things, the community that was being built, all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what would that mean to apply that to what we're ta- how we're talking about these technologies now, if you were to apply those lessons to how we're talking about them now? I mean, I think we should be making sure that we're building communities that are as diverse as possible, that's for sure. I mean, we don't want to be in a situation where we are not realizing until it's too late how harmful our technologies that we're building are for like communities outside of the bubble of people that are actually building them. Um, so, you know, I think looking at uh, critiques that are being launched and like really listening to them and not being reactionary, it's difficult because all of this stuff... All this development in Web3, like, it's occurring within the context of, like, the dying days of Web2, right? So, like, all the worst of the divisiveness and the outrage and the arguments and the polarization and the ways that which our current platforms incentivize us to yell at each other 
we're yelling at each other about the development of this new thing. Oh God, such a good point. I, oh man, you, know what I you mean? see it in the rhetoric about it. <laughs> like, why are we having this horrible conversation about Web three? Because it's happening on Web two. <laughs> it really is, and like, I, I mean, I have friends on both sides of the of the divide on this, and I don't really know where I. To be honest, I don't really know where I sit. I'm kind of floating back and forth. I think there's there's yeah, good and too. bad everywhere, right? Yeah, and I, agree. I mean, like, we're we're in this. We're trying to imagine a better world, but we're still in the ruins of the bad one. So. How we move forward, I I don't know. I mean, we have to somehow kind of power through this, like, really, this really kind of angry, messy, confusing part of it and try to make sure that we are opening ourselves to as many perspectives as possible so that we build something that doesn't put us right back into this situation of this intense divisiveness. Um, we need to, to build opportunities for real conversation, real discourse, and real exchange. Um, and hopefully the new technologies will allow us to do that. But um, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I'd find that easier if it wasn't some of the same people um, <laughs> yeah. doing doing this now. You know, like it does feel like we're a lot of the same people who made the money and built the thing and made all the mistakes and now are moving on to something new that we're supposed to trust. Yeah, I know. Right? I find I that know. challenge. But. Me too. Me too. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I... If anything, I hope your work and your book and your way of thinking informs what we build next. Um, And I appreciate (laughs) talking about it. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for wanting to talk about it. I hope the future is better than the past, or at least as interesting. That was my conversation with Claire L. Evans. As always, you can reach me at taylor at bigtechpodcast.com. Big Tech is presented by the Center for International Governance Innovation in association with Antica Productions. The show is produced by Trevor Hunsberger, Debbie Pacheco, and Mitchell Stewart, with associate producer Abi Reheja. Please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We release new episodes on Thursdays every week.